afternoon and welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club brought to you by the Team Approach, designed so you can listen to conversations with featured authors and then dialogue with them in a discussion group on LinkedIn. This year on Bookends, we are featuring books that can transform us, our relationships, and our organizations. Today, we will be exploring Living in More Than One World, How Peter Drucker's Wisdom Can Inspire and Transform Your Life by Bruce Rosenstein. Following our interview today, you are invited to log into LinkedIn, search groups, and join the group called Bookends, the discussion. Here you can pose questions and discuss with your peers. You can dialogue with our Bookends featured authors who are members of this group. You will also find a link to a recording of today's interview as well as previous interviews. Invite your friends to join the group and listen and discuss with you. I'm your host, Susan Stamm, and I'd like to introduce our guest, Bruce Rosenstein has written about business and management books for USA Today's Money section and worked as a librarian and researcher there for 21 years. He has studied Peter Drucker extensively. Conducting one of the last interviews Drucker gave seven months just before his death, Rosenstein is also a lecturer in the Catholic University of America School of Library and Information Science in Washington, D.C. Peter Drucker was an enormously successful business author and consultant who wrote extensively on personal development, but these writings were scattered throughout dozens of books and articles. For the first time, Bruce Rosenstein has assembled these ideas into a straightforward framework that guides you in building a multifaceted life and career. To get a copy of Living in More Than One World, visit www.bkconnection.com. That's B like Bob, K like Kevin. We're excited to have this time with you today, Bruce, and it seems to me that visiting with you is probably the next best thing to be mentored by Drucker himself. And I'd like to welcome you and thank you for joining us today on Bookends. Well, thanks very much, and I certainly hope I can live up to that in in terms of uh, being the next best thing to being mentored by Peter. It would would serve a wonderful purpose for your listeners if I can do that. Well, you're you're a very humble man, and uh, having spent the time with your book, um, uh, I'm not sure that all of that humility is warranted. Uh, I really appreciated the book, and... uh, Look forward to taking the time to to talk with you today about it. You know, there there had been glimpses of this idea of living in more than one world for years in, in Drucker's work, but these threads were not really presented in any way that was really easy to see this emphasis on on this philosophy. Can you tell us uh, about that interview that you gave seven months before Peter Drucker's death and and how this idea of living in more than one world was presented to you um, on that interview and why that day it hit you so significantly. Right. The the interview was done at the um, what's now called the Drucker Institute, the Drucker Archives in in Claremont, California, where where the Drucker School is. And we were videotaping the interview, so I was feeling a fair amount of pressure that that you know things would would go really well. And he was he was um, 95 years old at that point, and but he was really on that day. He was quite sharp, and it was. Uh, I asked, asked him a question a question about oh maybe 15 16 minutes into the interview about we were talking about kind of promotions within organizations and how sometimes people, the best thing for people was, was not to be promoted. People wanted to get to a certain level and stay at that level. And part of that reason was to do other things. So in his answer to me about this particular question, he said that for some people, uh, they did get fulfillment from their jobs, but they only wanted to go to a certain point. But he used a couple of examples he used were were someone who uh, also volunteered with the boy scouts and that was tremendously meaningful and then another thing about a person um whose family took precedence um over the job so as i was listening to this this idea of the total life came to me about organizing your your total life and he had mentioned something about more than one world before he he came in with a quote that that starts the book about the people who are most satisfied and content in life live in more than one world. I thought it was just such a lovely metaphor. I hadn't heard it before or since from him um, or really from anyone else. 
and uh, it just spoke to me very, very deeply. And it, be- it began to, to show me how I could eventually get this framework for the book built around this concept of living a multidimensional life in more than one world. Yeah, and it's, it's really so consistent with so many of the things that he talked about that really, you really provided a really nice framework for all of these ideas and that, of course, you've presented so um, wonderfully for us in this work. Uh, and the suggestion of how to live in this era of what we call knowledge workers is really significant because it seems that we we know as knowledge workers, we know how to work. In fact, we excel at this. But many of us, maybe we don't really know how to live as well as we know how to work. Can you tell us where this idea of knowledge workers, this label really comes from and, and what it really means? It started, uh, Drucker first came up with this term, it was either 1957 or 1959. And when you think about that, it was well before the, the point where there really were lots of knowledge workers. It was certainly before the the era of, of personal computers. It was before uh, college going was just such a um, a done thing as it as it became soon after that, but not really at that point. So he had the foresight, as he did in so many areas, to identify this area of knowledge work. He he said even back then that the whole idea of of making things, of manufacturing things, was not going to be the way of the future. That it would be that it would be knowledge work. So it's basically at its most basic level work that's done with brain rather than brawn. Now, sometimes when people say it's work with the head rather than the hand, which can be true in some point, but uh, when you think about people, let's say like um, like doctors, like surgeons who who need who, who work with their hands quite a bit, and that's obviously knowledge work of a high order. So um, I like to say, and, and I think Drucker said quite a bit too, that it's that you're working with your 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 brain rather than brawn. Um, so that's one thing. And again, it, it first came up in around 57 or or in 59. Um, and in the uh, book, because there's this concept, it's it's written about a lot. It's you you get this term thrown about a lot, but people don't often stop to think of of who these people are. Uh, in in the book, I just list some examples which I can read now, which were are um, people who work in the computer and information technology industries, teachers, doctors, and other healthcare professionals, scientists, lawyers, librarians, clergy, people who work in the media. And obviously, there there are more than that, but that gives you a pretty good idea of people who would be in that um in that classification. So um I think that this concept is really a profound one and uh some people say it can be kind of a clumsy term but I'm not sure if people have really come up with a um with a better term of of something like that for something like that. The other thing I should mention is that there's this whole idea of because you are a knowledge worker that your your skills are portable. So they can go over different types of industries. They can you can do them for for uh, working for people who don't live in the same area that you do. So this idea of portability was very very important to him. And one other thing I should mention related to that that he was very very big on is this idea of responsibility. That being knowledge workers gives us responsibility, and with with power comes from responsibility is kind of what he was saying rather than let's say your your position. So he was very very strong on that. He 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 um he favored the term responsibility over empowerment and um he just felt that it really went hand in hand with the idea of the knowledge worker. It's amazing, you know, when you think about that that he saw this coming back in the in the late fifties. Uh, right. What a what a visionary it is. In a sense, it may be a futurist, perhaps. Right. He 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 didn't he didn't think of himself that way. However, he 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 was very concerned about the future. In fact, I have a whole chapter in the book called "Creating Your Future," and he just felt though that the future would would come about. And not because you predicted it or I predicted it, um, but um, or you'd be predicting it for yourself. But it it comes about by what you do today and what's out there today. He also had this great phrase, which has been bandied about a lot, called "the future that has already happened," which is the title of one of his articles for um, Harvard Business Review back in the um, mid '90s, I believe. 
And again, one of these great things that the outlines of what we need to see the future are there, um, but what are we going to do with it? it? It takes a certain amount of whether you'd call it a future futurist or not. It takes a certain skill and power of observation to draw from what's already out there and then draw some implications for the future. He was great at doing this, but I think he built in a discipline to that, and he felt that people could could do these things by by considering them to be a discipline and by um, by just as he said that innovation was a discipline. So a lot of these things that a lot of people think are somewhat mystical or only available to certain people or only available to highly creative people or people who have tremendous amounts of, uh, of um, formal learning. Um, he said, well, no, th- these things really are disciplines and they're things that can be learned. And I think that's very heartening. And I, I wonder, you know, if his ability to um, look into the future and see some of these kinds of things comes from the fact that he really did live this idea of living in more than one world. He was so well-rounded. He had his, you know, his his uh, his feet in so many different camps. And I guess I'm getting ahead of myself because I want to talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, yeah, but you're but, you're correct. You're correct, and I think that's a big reason why he could see those outlines is because he was operating in those different worlds. Well, I was I was really struck by your comment in the book that Drucker's ideas were too important to be appreciated only by managers, and that he really did have a much broader following. And you highlight um, his work around the idea of self-management, which he included in um, his work, which was called Management Revised Edition. And um, I've been uh, working a little bit with Daniel Pink's recent work, which is called Drive, uh, and he, uh, Pink has gone as far uh, to suggest in, in this most recent book, Drive, that maybe the concept of management itself is really an outdated idea, and he has suggested that self-management is really the future of organizations. What were Drucker, what were Peter Drucker's ideas about self-management? What did he have to say about about this this area? Well, self-management was, was very, very important to him. And he, again, it was one of these things where he never, he never did the whole book, which is one of the reasons, uh, a main reason that I did my book is that he never took a whole book for Drucker and the individual. It's really scattered amongst a number of books, a number of articles. Um, the self-management article, which um, came into uh, is the Harvard Business Review in the, in the late 90s, and apparently it uh, still sends, sells quite a few reprints. And that article then, in I think maybe a slightly different form, uh, came out in one of his books. And, and he's written about it in other ways. But I think it, part of it gets back to this idea of responsibility, that we have to be responsible for ourselves, that we could, yes, we could be managed by other people, we could rely on our organizations for a certain amount, let's say, in, in learning and a certain amount of career direction, but really it was up to, to us to to do that. So he was very, very, uh, it was just an important concept to him. And in the, um, in the book called... Um, uh, management challenges for the for the 21st century. He he laid out some concepts for self-management. Maybe I should just kind of go over them really briefly. Yeah, These are great. in my book, but again, they only take a. They, they, it's just a one one segment of the book. But I think it, maybe it would be instructive to go over over the five things that he listed. Um, and the, the the first is that you have you have this idea of of self-knowledge. And in the book, I talk a lot about uh, quoting him on introspection and then introspection and action. Um, But you really have self-knowledge about what are your values, uh, what are your strengths, um, what are your work habits. And this would kind of feed in then to to what you do. And again, not not allowing other people to, to dictate this to you. And that might not be that easy, but in a lot of these things, I like to say that he had this kind of tough love approach that he said, in essence, yes, these things are not easy, but it's up to you to figure them out. And however it is you're going to do it, however it is you're going to learn these things about yourself um, through self-introspection, asking people, going out and observing, 
these are the things that you need to do. And yes, they're time consuming, but they need to be done. Um, in an organizational sense, another point was that you find out where you belong in an or you know, this is assuming you work for an organization, where, where you belong in that organization. And as I said earlier, sometimes it doesn't mean that you just keep moving up and up and up. You may plateau and, they, and that's okay. And then which organization is right for you? Is it a for-profit? Is it a non-profit? You know, what's really right for you? Where are you going to be happy and content and satisfied? He was very big on the idea of contribution. So he said um, you would have to decide what you'll contribute to your work and really what you'll contribute to the world, which I thought was a great idea that, that it's not just um, it, it's not just affecting a small amount of, of people, let's say a small amount of stakeholders, that it affects many, many more than that. It kind of radiates, radiates out into society. We mentioned I, earlier, I mentioned about responsibility. He said that you had to take responsibility for your relationships, and so both inside of an, and, and outside of work. And then this idea of planning for the second half of your of your life, which he said was a revolution in human affairs, which I thought was a very interesting concept. That before he was born in 1909, and he he died in, uh, 19, in I'm sorry, he died in 2005, so he was almost 96 years old. Uh, so. So in 1909, when he was born, life expectancies really were, were not that high. And he liked to say that people nowadays outlive organizations, and it used to be the other way around. So number one, you really had to be thinking that if you worked for an organization, chances are it's not going to be around in a certain amount of years, so what are you going to do? But also, you're going to live longer. You're going to um, go probably past your traditional retirement age. But if you're a knowledge worker, you're not going to be physically burned out. You're go you're going to be you're going to be in this position where you really want to be um, mentally alive. You want to be active. You want to have this meaningful second half of life. So you have to to plan for it. So I think those were the the points that he made as far as this idea of self management. Again, it was something very very um, important to him, and I like to think that the the idea of, um, and I haven't, I should say that I haven't read uh, Daniel Pink's latest book, but I, but I do know him personally, and I wrote about him and interviewed him for USA Today um, in 2008 for his book called The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, and I think that this, this, if he's talking about again with this proviso that I haven't read read uh, the book called Drive, the new one, but with this idea of self-management, because this is what we, we carry around with, within ourselves and managers, other managers may come and go, but, but we're going to continue to be responsible for ourselves. I think that, um, you know, my personal belief is that an organization full of people who excel at self-management is a very, very powerful force. I completely agree, and I was I was thinking as you were you were talking, uh, you know, uh, there that some of the the information that um, Drucker was so strong in promoting. Um, and you think about you know the point in time where people are preparing for that first half of their life in a sense, you know, is as they're reaching the end of high school. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get all of the high schools in this country to have students really study Drucker? Uh, because he's really, you know, as people are making career decisions, how often are they uh, making decisions based on, well, I need to make make X amount of dollars, so I guess I'll be this. <laughs> right, exactly. And it's just, it's like they've got the cart before the horse. Exactly. I would love to see that. I would love to see a Drucker-related course in, in, in high school to really get people thinking about what are their possibilities for, for college, if, if college is in the cards for them, or or beyond, but to really get them thinking about these things. There was a great uh, anecdote in one of his books that when he was 13, and that would have been when he was in Austria, he was born in Vienna, it, one of his, his religion teacher went around to all the boys in the class and said, I guess it was an all-boys class, and said, what do you want your legacy to be, which, was, which floored him and the other kids in that class at the age of 13. I think uh, uh, just the concept of Peter Drucker at 13 is, is pretty amazing, and it's, yeah. it's it's almost hard to think of, but if you can think of Peter Drucker at 13 sitting there and hearing this thing, which really profoundly affected him, that he put in one of his books many, many years later. Yeah. So he that planted the seed for him 
of what's he going to be remembered for. So I think that's a wonderful idea of taking these concepts and putting them into the curriculum very early, very early in high school. And I think it would be great also in college and beyond, but just that idea of in high school when people are really, really thinking of their possibilities in life and really kind of thinking of it far out, not just when they turn 18 or when they exactly. turn 21 or 22, but, but really beyond that. Yeah, wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, I, I, I loved uh, the quote that you included where Drucker is saying that he he doesn't know what he wants to be when he grows up. You know, how often we've all said that, but, you know, he was 58 years old, and, of course, this was Peter Drucker saying right. didn't know what he wanted to be when he grew up and um you know the fact that he said this at all and the fact that he said it at this point in his life i i found a little encouraging <laughs> but right. but it didn't seem uh so much that his comment comment was because he hadn't found interesting work you know work that could challenge him or inspire him would you agree oh, i definitely agree he was when he said that and that was in a wonderful article in um Psychology Today magazine that came out in 68 and then was reprinted in 1992. It was a Q&A, and it's just a fascinating, and if your listeners have a chance to look at that, a fascinating interview. And um, he, I quoted from that interview a couple times in in my book. I think he was very fulfilled, fulfilled at that point. He was teaching at NYU. He'd had a number of books out at that point. He would have been, let's say, um, 1968, it would have been 29 years since his first book came out. So he was a veteran author at that point. He was teaching at NYU. He was consulting. Um, I think things were probably going quite well for him. But I think he also realized, and again, th- think of that, in 19, when he was 58, uh, well, what were life expectancies then? Yeah. I don't think he could look out and see, well, I'm definitely going to be, I'm, I, I doubt that he thought he would live to what he did. Be, lived to, which was 95. But I think he, he did feel very fulfilled, but I think he felt that the, one of the reasons he said that was that there was, um, he recognized all the possibilities that there could be and that he, he wasn't tied down to exactly doing what he what he had been doing. And I, I thought about this, um, and I was looking through the book uh, recently, I thought about this and and kind of sketched out in my mind what did happen, which is that Within a couple of years, he left NYU and he went out to Claremont Graduate University, um, and and that school later became named for him. And so he took a much more active role in in the running of the school than he than he had done at um, at NYU. He also, after a while out in Claremont, he started teaching Japanese art because that was a big lifelong, or at least a long time interest of his. So. That was something else that he did while he was teaching management, although it got to be too time-consuming and and too draining, I think, for him, so he had to stop um, after a while. He wrote a couple of novels when uh, when he was in his seventies. So I think that you know, even though he kept this basic, you know, he was still a consultant. He still wrote books. He still wrote articles for the Harvard Business Review and the Atlantic, and columns for the Wall Street Journal. So he did all those things, but he. He moved to a different coast. He did these other types of uh, teachings, which are, you know, which are quite interesting. Uh, the novels, in the end, they didn't really work out, but at least he he did them, and something that was an ambition of his. So, uh, but I think he also wanted people to really think about it. That yeah, when you're 58, you you still have you have lots of options in in life or anywhere around there. It's that just the thinking of those those options, and it was sort of a fun way of saying it. And I think it kind of drew people into him when he said that, because you're right. He, when Drucker can have thoughts like that, that well, I'm not really sure exactly what's going to happen <laughs> in the future. That it's okay for the rest of us to have those kind of mm-hmm. thoughts as well. So encouraging too, and 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 I hadn't even considered of. Uh, you know, the era that he lived in when he was 58 and, and made this comment, what the life expectancy was, um, as you just shared, that really makes the comment even that more significant in light of that that uh, view. Well, here's another quote, uh, Drucker quote, that you include in the book, uh, which where he said, 
What matters is that the knowledge worker, by the time he or she reaches middle age, has developed and nurtured a human being rather than a tax accountant or a hydraulic engineer. Otherwise, a few years later, tax accounting or hydraulic engineering will become awfully stale and boring. (laughs) Uh, I thought that was great. An idea that, that you offer in the book to nurture the human being is you know, personal development. And and I love seeing, you know, this the words personal development in your book and knowing that Drucker was a proponent of personal development, you know, because he's of course known as the management guru. Right. Um you know, in the last uh period of time, um uh you know, really the the era of the 90s, I would say, there seemed to be out in the business community a real anti-personal development kind of thing going on. A lot of organizations that that we would talk to about our belief that these were important things to pay attention to, you know, what we would find is that a lot of organizations would look at personal development as being too soft. Um, Do you think that Drucker would have suggested a relationship between business results and personal development. I think that that he would, in the sense of of when he was laying out his concepts for managers, and and again, you know, kind of getting circling back to what you had said earlier about my view that Drucker is is more important than just for managers only, because he's he's often thought of in that way, and so I think some people close themselves off and say, hey, "Well, I'm not a manager. I don't want to be a manager." Why should I read Drucker? And yet there's all these other things that have nothing to do with with being a manager that are very important for people to read. So so I wanted to kind of circle back to that idea for a moment. But but he felt that um that one of the in terms of management, somebody who's who's tasked with the with, with the with the role of being a manager, that one of the key things in that role was that Excuse me. You develop people, including yourself, and I thought, what a fantastic thing! You know that that, that he really laid it out as one of the key areas of of being a manager. So I think that he he felt that that people in in organizations did need to do this. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, and that that it's whatever it was that that it took in lots and lots of things, and that's of course what I tried to uh, <clears throat> excuse me to to get at in the book that there there are lots of things that constituted this idea of of personal development and and then that quote which um was given by the way in 2002 I believe early 2002 so again he was thinking of these things very deep into into old age that people aren't going to stay necessarily as a tax accountant or a hydraulic engineer um certainly those fields will change a lot and they'll be affected by they'll be affected by all sorts of areas and i think one of the key things that he felt for personal development is to to be on top of those things you had to know about more than just your field you know yes you had to know what your field was but for many many reasons you had to go beyond that and you you had to be a well-rounded person and a well-read person and um that that reading however it's done whether it's in books and articles on the web wherever it is newspapers magazines that these are very important things so i think that he 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 would feel that there uh, again i i never like to put words in his mouth but just the fact that he said that one of the most important things that a manager can do is develop other people and himself or herself um, that that certainly would tie back right into the effectiveness of the organization. Yeah, yeah, it has to. And another idea, you know, continuing with this the same theme of personal development. Uh, another idea in the book that you share to um, develop the, the the human being involves creating a total life list. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this idea, this total life list idea that Drucker had, and and how you walk us through this process a bit in in your book so people have a sense of of how that's happening as we're progressing through uh, Drucker's work with you. 
Right. Well, first thing I have to to say here is that the 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 total life list concept was mine. Oh. It's, it's not something that he um, that he did. I mean, when he when this phrase total life popped into my head and listening to him, I realized that and and I got that great answer from him and then all the other great things he said in that particular interviews and and other ones that I did with him. I realized that in order to to really take advantage of this and to present it in the best way, you would really need to organize the elements in your life. So I tried to, uh, as part of the framework of the book, lay out a framework where there were these different areas in your life, which would be, which would then feed into each chapter. And at the end of each chapter, we list. Sometimes we list all the areas. Sometimes we would just list some of them. But we would say. How they related to to the particular um, um, chapter, and we'd give hints about doing them. So you could fill the, fill this list out either as you're going along, whichever is more comfortable to you, or maybe after you you uh, finished reading the book. But the whole idea was that you would have to. It kind of forces you to look at your life, the elements in your life, and these are both the activities in your life and the people within those activities, and just some of them to give you an idea. Um, one is your immediate family. One is your extended family, your closer work colleagues, your friends, the um, the people in your various professional networks. A number of us are involved in different. If you're in, especially if you're in more than one world, you're going to have different um, networks. Um, and then the rest of it is your activities, and some of them will be your learning activities, some of them will be your professional affiliations and your associations. And by the way, you're, you're, you're asked to put in what you're doing currently and your future goals. So maybe you're not, you belong to some professional um, organizations, but you have some goals of things you'd like to do. You'd like to be an officer, you'd like to be a volunteer, you'd like to write for their publication, that sort of thing. And then um, there's there's actually 14 of these in the, four, in the counting both the people area and the activities area, and and it goes into everything about your outside activities, including um, uh, things like book groups, creative areas, sports, amateur interest societies. There's another category for exercise and other mind body activities, and um, it's a good way, I believe, of organizing your your life, and, and because again, you're putting in these goals and you're looking at it from different frameworks as you read the book. And I think it's one thing at the beginning to to there's in, in the area about um, learning and teaching, if if any. So you maybe look at that in the first chapter, but then when you get to the fifth and final chapter on teaching and learning you're going to perhaps think of it in, in a different way. So it was all coming up with this idea of the framework and how was I going to use this material and express it in the best way. And luckily, listening to his answer and giving me this idea for total life and then saying, boy, I've got to try to organize this in some way or people aren't going to be able to grasp it as well as, as uh, they perhaps could otherwise. Well, I found it to be really, really helpful, and I was kind of mind mapping my my total oh, life list as I was uh, going through the the book, and it, for me, it it really helped me to see, um, you know, where I was a bit out of balance, um, mm-hmm. okay. and, and and where I really needed to, um, you know, kind of round myself out. So I found it to be an extremely um, helpful process. And, oh, uh, wonderful! Thank you. Um, I'm sorry for attributing that to Trucker. It's it's a little confusing when a person is writing about someone else's work because you don't really have a clear distinction of where to draw the line. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And it's something that um, in the book is sort of noted kind of subtly because I didn't think it, uh, it was worth hitting people over the head with this idea, sure. you know, hey, this is my uh, thing, and didn't want to make it sound like... Um, like bragging, so it's it's very subtle, but I think it's it's true to Peter's to Peter's ideas, and he had this idea, by the way, that I, I think might be interesting to bring in here, and I think this might have also maybe subliminally was in my head when I was thinking about doing the total life list in one of the novels that he wrote, um, and I think this was called The Last of All Possible Worlds, and it was set in Europe in the 19th century. But he had this idea of of 
a mathematician, a mathematics professor, talking to one of his students, and his, he was saying that the most important thing was, and this could be applied in all sorts of areas of life, was was organizing the set. And, and I'm not a mathematician. I don't know if that's mathematically correct or not, but it was really drawn out in that chapter quite well, and that really struck me, you know, that you organize what you've got. You, you know, you just get it down in some form so you know you know what you're dealing with. So I think that subliminally was in my mind when I was creating this uh, idea of the total life list. Well, a great, great tool. I really enjoyed it. Well, uh, Drucker's passion for this idea of having more than one life comes through uh, loud and clear in a quotation that you've included in the book that comes from one of his later works, uh, uh, Management, the Revised Edition, where he said, knowledge workers need to develop, preferably while they are still young, a, a non-competitive life and a community of their own and some serious outside interests could be uh, working as a volunteer in the community, playing in a local orchestra, or taking an active part in a small town's local government. Would you, you talk in the book, you share a number of, of benefits um, that, that could come from this. You know, some of them are, uh, were, were not quite so obvious. Uh, would you share, you know, some of the benefits that would come from following this advice? Yeah, he and I thought it was very enlightened of him to put this in again, because so many people think of him as just being, business and don't realize that he was advocating that people, whether they're in business or not, needed to be thinking of of some of these areas. So um, there were, he felt there were a number of, of benefits to them. I mean, one benefit would be that you really, he was very big on the outside world, you know, that you, you, you find out what's happening beyond the four walls of, of your workplace or your home, that you get out and meet and work with people who, who think and act differently from you, that there was a real value to that, that you would also find out about things going on in the world that you wouldn't find out otherwise because you were doing these activities. Um, you would learn a lot, let's say certainly, well, in any, any of those um, examples. Uh, but let's say, you know, you're playing in a local orchestra. I mean, that would certainly force, force, you, force you to uh, learn, a, learn a lot more about music on a continuing basis and really keep up your skills. But, of course, you'd be meeting all sorts of people that you wouldn't have met otherwise by, by doing that. Um, he also had something that I thought was very profound related to these things, that these are important for your self-respect. They're important for for your your family, for your self-worth. Um, sometimes we're not going to get that from our work. A lot of people do have work that they feel is very um, fulfilling, and maybe that's enough for them, although we're saying in the book, even if you have fulfilling work, that you still need these other things. But be that as it may, that sometimes people, for their, for their real self-worth and really feeling like an important person is really making a contribution, that by doing these types of things that Drucker just talked about in the passage that you read, that that's where it's going to come from. And it's going to be, because it's going to make you a more fulfilled person, you're just going to be better in your home. You know, you'll sort of be better to live with and easier to live with. And um, and then if you have a setback in one area, let's say in your work, um, if you have a really serious setback, it's going to be less so. It might still be very serious to, to you, but it would be less so if you really have these fulfilling things going on in this outside world. And again, I think it's key that he says some serious outside interest, you know, something that you really put some time into, some thought into. Maybe it's something that involves um, taking courses or whatever it might be, but but it's something that it's 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 fairly serious. You can have fun at it, but it it would have to be something that you take seriously. So I think these were all great reasons, and I think it was wonderful that he enumerated these things in this way to saying, you know, here's why you should do them, and here's why they're important not just to you but to to the other people in your life. Yeah. I know sometime within the last year I ran across some research, and I apologize, I can't begin to tell you where where this research was, but it was about volunteerism and um you know, they were finding that people who were heavily involved in volunteering in a serious way, as uh, as you were just describing, are a lot happier. Right. 
Right. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen that particular research, but I've seen things like it and say that um, that they are. You know, it's very self-fulfilling. And another reason I should mention uh, related to that is that you get to pick these activities. You may be in a job that you've taken because, for all sorts of reasons, but maybe you it's not your first, first choice or your profession is maybe not even your first choice. But you get to pick the areas that you um, want to volunteer in, and there's so many different opportunities for it, and then you could really rise if you want to in those organizations. Let's say you're not going to get, uh, you're not going to rise for whatever reason in your your organization now, but you could be the president of a particular organization you're um, volunteering for. So there again, it's all these different choices that we have, and that this whole idea of in terms of living in, in in more than one world, that the the idea of volunteerism implies choice. It implies responsibility. He said something when he spoke to um, the Special Libraries Association, which is a business-oriented library group, which was founded in the year of his birth, 1909. And I interviewed him for USA Today the night before that he, he gave this keynote address in Los Angeles to the conference 2002. But he had a very simple formula that I that I love that he mentioned to the librarians because he was talking about living a a well-rounded life. And he said, find an organization whose values fit you and go out and and volunteer for them. So you know it's just very very simple. Um, but again, that's kind of the way that he delivered his messages very often in very plain language, very simple language, and very very direct language. Now, not all the things he said were easy to follow. They might be it might be difficult advice, even something like that. Again, there's so many choices. Uh, I mentioned in, in the book, uh, there's uh, a professor from uh, Swarthmore College named Barry Schwartz who has this concept of the, para the paradox of choice, that we you get paralyzed by, by choice. There's so many different things that you can't do anything because you just think, well, I could do this, I could do that, I could do the other thing, what are the pros and cons, and then you end up doing nothing. Yeah. So we don't really want to get in that particular <laughs> position, but I think there's a danger in that, even in volunteering, that we have so many different things, especially if you live in a in a big city, that um, there's a danger that we just keep deciding, keep deciding, keep deciding, and end up not yeah. doing anything at all. Yeah, that's a great point. He, he, uh, Drucker had advice for so many different parts of our life, and um, I was wondering about a curious comment that you include in the book that he made in a 1952 Fortune magazine article, which was called How to Be an Employee, and he said this. He said, loafing is easy, but leisure is difficult. What, what was he trying to tell us? I think he was trying to tell us, and by the way, that article um, – I don't know. I, I saw it when I was out at the Drucker Archives, but it's a wonderful, wonderful article. And unfortunately, the book that it was reprinted in was uh, is now out of print. But of course, people have all ways, all different ways of finding things these days. But it's just a it's a delightful article, and he had all sorts of great advice for for people about about really how to be a good employee. And part of that was by being a a well-rounded person. And I think he was just saying that there's really a difference that some people feel that their leisure time is just sort of sitting around and and doing nothing or 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 it's completely passive type of, um activities. And I think that he was saying, well, you know, that's kind of really more loafing in a lot of ways. This is how I interpret it anyway. Maybe somebody else would think of a different way. But that leisure was different, and there were and these things that you know I mentioned before about taking classes, about um, about um, playing music, maybe acting, dancing, all these other things. They they will take some thought on your part, and they may involve you know you may have to take classes in them. Uh, so I think that he was saying that it's it's not necessarily easy to engage. They, they may be a lot of fun when you're doing them, but to do them well, to really get something out of them, is going to really take some uh, time and effort on on your part initially and then probably through it. So that, that's how I interpreted it. But again, what a great comment. I mean, yeah. you could, whether or not you, you spin it out and interpret it, it's just it's that... 
thing is just, I just again, wonderful. He had such a way with words. Yes, he did. Very compelling. It, well, it, and it's certainly a, a good segue into what I want to talk about next because it doesn't appear as though uh, Peter and his wife, Doris Drucker, spent a lot of time loafing. Uh, right. In fact, they were very strong advocates for keeping healthy and active. And, um, you know, this would certainly be a component of the more than, the, you know, living in more than one world philosophy. Could could you talk to us uh, about how uh, the Druckers role modeled this in their own lives? They uh, they they really did role model it quite well, and, and Doris is still quite active. Um, and she's she's um, she's I don't know if she's playing tennis anymore. She may well be. I mean, she's as far as I know in in her nineties, and uh, is is quite active. But I know that she for many years played tennis really seriously. I'm not sure if Peter did, but Dora certainly did. Um, they were both very big on uh, walking and on mountain hiking. And my understanding is that she, when I interviewed her for a USA Today story back in 2004, she had only given up um, mountain hiking right around right around that point. So uh, that sort of exercise was done over a long, long period of time. Uh, they had a, a there's a, a swimming pool in their uh, backyard, so I know that Peter is a really avid swimmer, and I imagine Doris is as well. So they really did have quite a bit in the way of, the, of, of this physical activity and and keeping healthy. I don't think they could have gotten to the ages that Doris is now or that Peter did um, when when he passed away in 2005. I don't think had they not had a really healthy, active lifestyle would they have been able to to do this? And we should say that Peter really worked up until very close to the time of his death. I mean, it was quite admirable. You know, he still had books coming out. He still had articles coming out. Every once in a while he would give a lecture, even though his his last formal classes, as far as I know, were in 2002. But again, they're just very, very admirable in this, you know, going deep into old age and doing the things that you need to do to to keep yourself healthy and active and and we as knowledge workers have lots of uh, areas in that way that we can tap into in terms of you know again it may be difficult it gets back to this idea that it's difficult to make the time some of them may involve things where we need to take classes that sort of thing but again i think it's something where he felt it was important and and again, as you said, they role modeled it perfectly in their own lives. Yeah, they certainly did. And, and every once in a while, as I'm reading your book, I'm feeling you know a little bit like a, a lazy slug. Consider <laughs> 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 all of the the contributions that this this man made and, and how active he was uh, right to the end. It, you know, it really causes you to think about how you're using um, your time and your life and, and how important it is. Now, to live in more than one world, Drucker knew that we needed to leverage our strengths and our core competencies in new ways. And you introduced some different tools in the book. And, and I, I was wondering if we could talk about one of these tools, which was achievement. And, and some have speculated that at the root of some of our recent economic challenges, people, you know, perhaps maybe they were really focused on achievement and maybe that was the driver behind some of their actions. But I'm guessing that maybe they had a different philosophical view than the view embraced by Drucker as he saw achievement. If we as a society embraced his views, do you, you know, I'm asking you now, Bruce, you know, do you think that that we might be facing some of the crisis, for example, in our financial industry uh, here in the U.S., if, if we embraced achievement in the same way that Drucker saw it. Um, so without trying to put any words into Drucker's mouth, you know, um, what do you think it, and what do you think he might have thought um, that went wrong as, as people viewed their need to achieve in, in light of some of the decisions that were made in the last, you know, two years here in the U.S.? Right. I think that the that if people had really thought about achievement and really thought about that in a way more that that Drucker did, that we wouldn't have gotten into this into this mess. Uh, in 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 the book, there's 
we're drawing the the distinction between achievement and making money um, because I I thought that you know there were a lot of people out there who their main goal was to make money. I mean that was their focus and it kind of bothered me in a way and I thought I should ask him about it because you know in these interviews I felt that Drucker for the organization had already been done by him and other people so I didn't really want to ask him about excuse me running organizations I wanted to ask him about this whole idea of running our own lives and so I asked him about I didn't introduce the concept of achievement I introduced I just introduced the concept of should making money be a goal and he said you know making if that was your main goal he he said i'd rather pity you he yeah. said that achievement was more important so i think he was saying it's 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 okay to make money and certainly a lot of drucker's followers made you know quite a bit of money but um but that the the main focus should be on achievement and he said something to me like um um that you want to leave something behind he said a hospital that's working a company that's working uh whatever so that you're not money focused, but you're achievement focused, because that never ends, which I thought was wonderful. There's this idea that if you work for achievement, he also said something not to me, but in one of his books, but we put it in the book, um, that achievement is addictive, which I think is quite interesting. You, know, you achieve and you you want to do more. Just like he he felt he was driven more by his successes than his failures. So um, just this idea, you know, it gives you some momentum when you when you achieve things. So. I think that if people thought that they that we would not have gotten into this mess, at least not anywhere near like we did. The other thing, though, when you say about what he might have thought, to me this goes back perfectly to when I did that interview in 2002 in Los Angeles. It happened to be when the corporate scandals were really raging. This is the era of Enron and WorldCom yeah. was about to happen. And I asked him, and by the way, if people go to my website, BruceRosenstein.com, the, I have links to uh, a number of my Drucker articles, so it's up there for free. Oh, and this particular one from 2002, which I was, I was very, very proud of, of, of doing. And um, he said, I asked him about this, and he said that um, he had just seen waves of these things over the course of his life, that these things, unfortunately, they, they happen. People, um, he had uh, he had a quote in there that says, um, "These are businesses that start legitimately and overreach themselves, and then they begin to play games." Um, he also had. To, I just have to read this because I just think it's so great and so apropos of what you asked. He said, "He said to me, it all begins with the management having a brilliant idea. The brilliant ones are always the ones who get caught." And I just, again, I thought, you know, he could say these things that were. I don't think he meant it to be funny, but they could be humorous while while also touching on a really, really important issue. And so I think that again, had he seen this in in two thousand I mean, what happened in two thousand eight, um I think he would have been probably dismayed, but I think he also would have thought, Hey, you know, here it is again. It's yeah. taking a somewhat different form. Yeah. We had these brilliant people in there. Um and what did they do? So uh, so I think that uh, he, unfortunately, he would not have been surprised. He would have said, you know, hey, this is yet another wave of this thing that 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 we've seen. He told me, by the way, I didn't put this in the story, but I just happened to see a book uh, in a bookstore the other day called um, the, the Match King about Ivar Kreuger. And... I didn't know who Ivar Kreuger was, but he used this as an example. He said to me, uh, well, you've heard of Ivar Kreuger, the Swedish match king, haven't you? And I said, no, I haven't. Of course, I went back and looked it up when I got back got back home. But but again, this was a, this was you know a, a scandal, I believe, in the early 20th century, I believe. And so, you know, he just had these things in his head that he called on, and but again now i see that these that here's something where there's a new book about this about this man so so again drucker was just so brilliant but so good at taking these examples out of history and just applying them in in a perfect way to what's going on at the moment i completely agree 
you know, I'm, I'm looking at our time, and, and um, as, as we're wrapping things up, there's something that I really, really um, would like to include in the interview, and and that is um, you you offer in your book this toolbox for leveraging your core competencies, which, you know, uh, Drucker, uh, you know, talked about our uh, need to leverage our core competencies, of course, so so was such an important idea to him. And one of the, the tools is this idea of systematic abandonment. And I, I'm not quite sure now. I, I want to say that I thought this came from Drucker, but <laughs> maybe it did, this yes. was your idea as well. Um, right. No, it's uh, a Drucker which, idea. Okay, this was a Drucker idea. I, I'd never um, heard this before, and I was really intrigued by it. As we wrap up our time today, could you tell us, you know, what this was and, and how he would use this. It went by two names. It went by both systematic abandonment and planned abandonment. And it was another one of these ideas where it's generally thought of for the corporation, but he did have a little bit in one of his books about using it for the individual. And, and in our book, we're just saying, while it's certainly um, applicable for the organization, it's, it's definitely applicable for the individual as well. And this is where you, you look at your activities. And again, to me, this gets back to the to the total life list, you look at your activities and say, if, if, would I start doing this knowing what I know now? Would I start doing this, this particular activity? And if the answer is no, you really have to think about, well, why are you still doing it? Um, is it worth dropping? Is it worth scaling back? And Drucker said, this is very hard. It's very hard for us to do. A lot of times we have these activities, and for whatever reason, we just don't want to give them up. But sometimes they've outlived their usefulness. Sometimes it's it's an impediment for us to do something that's um, maybe more worthwhile for our time. And time is usually a problem for a knowledge worker. So where are you going to find this time? If you want to add a new activity, let's say a new volunteering activity, or maybe you're thinking of becoming an entrepreneur, what have you, uh, where's that time going to come from? So you have to look at your activities and really say, would I would I keep doing this? Should I keep doing this? And what's involved in scaling it back or just cutting it all together? And I think it's a very, very powerful tool. But again, it gets back to this tough love approach, this approach of saying that you know these things, they may be simple in the outline, but to to put them into, a, into action can be very complex and can be very difficult and requires a lot of thought. So you go, kind of go into these things with your eyes wide open. But I, I agree with you. I think this is a, a very powerful tool, and people who can really leverage this, um, I think they can really use it to their advantage. Yeah, I thought it was just, you know, really important in light of the whole book and, and kind of the thesis of the book and, and that if you're really trying to live in more than one world, you know, that involves learning and, and you know, maybe you've been doing something for a period of time, and as you just said, it's kind of hard to let go of it. You right. know, but there's all these other opportunities and all these needs, and you can grow and, and learn in new ways, but there's only so much time <laughs> and exactly, only so much right. of you. <laughs> right, that's right. That's true, yes. Yeah, you don't want burnout from, from just adding just adding and adding and adding yeah. and then getting to the point where you're where you're totally burned out. Well, there's so much more that we could talk about here, and, uh, you know, I, I just really, really want to thank you for, for taking the time to, to share your love and your understanding of, of Peter Drucker with us today, you know, the man and his work. Well, um, you're quite welcome. I, I really enjoyed it. It's just a tremendous legacy that he's left us, and, and you've just woven so much of the the work that probably is lesser known together in, in this book, and it just was a fabulous uh, book for me, and uh, I, I really encourage others to to get a copy of this book and to uh, spend some time with it as well. And once again, um, to visit the publisher's website and to purchase a copy of of this book, that website is BK, and that's for Barrett Kohler, www.bkconnection.com. And Bruce, you also mentioned your web, your website is a really great source for interviews and things that you've done with Drucker, and I believe you said that was BruceRosenstein.com. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Okay. Well, I encourage people to, to visit that as well. I know I will be visiting it. Following Thank our you. interview today, I just wanted to remind folks that to uh, to join in the conversation um, that, that we've begun here today uh, with, with others, uh, we'd encourage you to join a group on LinkedIn 
called Bookends to the Discussion, and you can pose questions uh, for for your peers in this discussion group. And um, you will also find a link to today's for today's recording that will be posted there uh, probably in a week or so. Uh, so please uh, uh, join the the group and join the discussion, and invite your friends to join the group as well. So once again, Bruce, we really, really appreciate your time and your expertise and, of course, this wonderful book that you've uh, invested the time in, in writing and sharing Drucker and his wisdom with us. Thanks again. Okay. Thank you very much. 